I'm Jennifer Nicholson, and I'm happy to be here with Ben Allery today. Ben is the CEO of Blue Jay Legal and is a professor and also chair of business law at the University of Toronto. So, Ben, you are uh, not a CPA, but you're a not lawyer. Not a CPA, a lawyer, that's right. Yeah, but tax law. That's right. That's uh, Some of my best friends are accountants. Oh, that's good. You, you <laughs> hang around with the right people then. Right. <laughs> Before joining the University of Toronto as a full-time professor in 2004, Professor Allery completed graduate work in economics at U of T, graduate work in law at the Yale Law School, and was a law clerk for Madam Justice Louise Arbor at the Supreme Court of Canada. He has dozens of academic publications, including several editions of a leading text on tax law, Canadian income tax law. He is a past president of the Canadian Law and Economics Association and served as Associate Dean of the Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto from 2011 to 2014. In 2015, Professor Allery co-founded Blue Jay Legal with two other professors from the University of Toronto to bring artificial intelligence and machine learning to the field of tax law. So how did you get interested in this field? Well, it really, it came kind of gradually, then also suddenly. So it's, uh, it's born out of my long-time interest in judicial decision-making uh, and so got very very um, into analyzing judicial decision-making as a young academic beginning in I think in 2005 or 2006 my research agenda really started to to gravitate towards studying how judges actually make decisions and trying to discern patterns using various statistical techniques econometric techniques and, and looking at how judges actually make decisions and, and there are a cluster of academics at the University of Toronto at the law school who do this sort of work and so uh, it really grew out of that that interest in trying to really understand how judges take different things um, into account and, and really to contextualize judicial decision making that gave rise to this more general interest in using different techniques to predict how judges are going to make decisions. So that's really how this came about. So it seems gradual in the sense that I've for a very long time been interested in how judges make decisions and have, have written uh, extensively on judicial decision making. Um, I just recently had a book um, published with my co-author Andrew Green on essentially analyzing how different high courts, different Supreme Courts across jurisdictions make decisions and how different institutional features of those courts are correlated with how judges make decisions. And so that, that kind of represents the outgrowth of all of this interest in judicial decision making. Now, how it seems that it's kind of sudden, so that's the gradual piece. The sudden piece is that it really is with the advent of deep learning algorithms right. and additional computing power and um, various cloud-based technologies that a practical, workable solution for predicting how judges are going to make decisions in new cases actually begins to be viable technologically. So um, it's, it's still a massive amount of work and there's still a lot of training that needs to be done of these machine learning algorithms at the moment using existing technology. But suddenly these things are tractable. Like you can actually build these systems that are predicting patterns of judicial decision making that 10 years ago when I really started in in earnest on 
these sorts of questions more than 10 years ago now. It just wasn't really possible using those more conventional statistical programs and algorithms. Wow, it sounds like uh, when you initially did your research, you must have spent a lot of time digging through a lot of paper <laughs> to, to, to get that information. Absolutely, absolutely. I did personally, but also, you know, some really fantastic research assistants who are all law students at the University of Toronto helped out uh, to a really huge extent with a lot of that, that research. That's great. And when we look at the phases of the evolution of tax research, so how has it changed over the years? Yeah, so there's been a, a profound change. So the income tax is 100 years old. And for the first, I want to say, maybe 70, maybe 80, but 70 to 80 years of, of the history of the income tax, virtually all the research would have been done using hard copy resources. So every accounting firm, every law firm with a tax practice had a big tax library and you'd have a whole bunch of materials. I remember when I was in law school, Professor David Duff getting up in front of the class and he was talking about tax research and he said, you should all go down to the Canadian Tax Foundation's offices because they have a really extensive tax library. It's amazing. They have everything there. It's all there in the stacks. You should go and the, the librarians there are really, really helpful. You can go down and find everything. By the time I finished law school in 2002, so much of the materials were available um, online in digital format. So we, we moved from this transition from paper-based resources to digitally available resources. So we actually took things that were in books and put them on screens. And that was a big, big change because suddenly you can replicate what is on your screen, on my screen, on anybody's screen. It's non-rival. Suddenly the information can be in multiple places at the same time and nobody's you know, not able to look at something because somebody else is looking at the same thing. That was a big change. The navigation was much improved. Exactly. You, didn't have to... you can just go search for things. You don't have to yeah. dig through piles of books. Yeah. I remember when I um, was in the CA program back in the 90s, yes, we definitely used a lot of paper and, and uh, a lot of those income tax acts were, were certainly floating around the office. Right. Absolutely. And so the navigating is, is much better. It's hyperlinked. You can find you know, references from one material, set of materials to another set of materials really, really quickly. What's going to happen next is computational. And so we're, we're going to start leveraging even more than we are now, the, the fact that these materials are digital. So kind of the, the, the easy stuff is keyword searching and, right. um, and hyperlinking. Uh, the next stage is actually to really synthesize the contents at a conceptual level from all of these digitized materials and leverage it to make predictions about how, you know, clients' situations are going to be affected by those materials um, using intelligent systems, using computational research methods like, um, like tax foresight. So what really is computational tax research? So computational tax research is, it, it can take, I think, lots of different forms in theory. And, and I, I think we're only scratching the surface at this point of what computational tax research will be. I think it only seems like a thing because it is so different from how we've done things in the past. I think 10 years from now, everyone will look back at this change and, and regard it as inevitable. Of course, things were going to move towards computational legal research. They won't think it's a, a big deal, much in the same way that you know, now we take for granted that Google has indexed all the world's information on the internet. And if, you, yeah. if you're debating something over a beer, um, it doesn't make sense to debate very long before somebody just pulls out a smartphone and finds yeah, exactly. the answer almost immediately. And the same thing is going to happen in tax. So, you know, right now, some of the really challenging problems to answer are characterization questions, where it really depends on a whole bunch of different factors. But 
you know, it turns out that the courts have decided tons of these questions. You can actually ask one of these systems, one of these computational tax research systems, to consider a specific set of facts and get a, a really good prediction about what the courts would do with that unique situation, even though there may be no cases that precisely address that specific uh, situation. So it's basically using computing power to process using algorithms uh, all these materials that are already available digitally. That's what I mean by comp computational tax research. In the future, I think the sky's the limit. So we could be we could be talking about computational tax policy research. So it right. could be by decision makers or policymakers in the Department of Finance analyzing how things are happening, running really sophisticated models um, using all of these materials that are available. And so it could even go to the content of the law itself and kind of being influenced by these computational methods. You can imagine, um, if you if you want to indulge your imagination for a bit, having the system sit you down and say, so tell me about the client. Let's optimize the client's tax situation. And then you, you know you feed in a you know a bunch of documents. The system may ask some clarifying questions and say, okay, this is the optimal plan for this particular client. It may ask you questions about like how aggressive does this client want to be? How aggressive do you want to be? And it could actually kind of from top to bottom like build out um, a tax optimizing plan in light of all the case law, in light of all the regulations, the, the statutory materials that are present and authoritative, and maybe even predictions about future paths of legislative reform. Um, so wow. the, it's, it could be pretty, extremely sophisticated. Yeah, it's pretty yeah. crazy when you think about that that can be the future. Mm -hmm. And th what are the challenges to, to this kind of change? Uh, so there are lots of there are lots of challenges. I mean, one is just figuring out how all this needs to work. So we need to invent this technology, right? So at this point, we have some really really fantastic tools that can predict in different areas of of tax practice the results of uh, what the courts would say in different situations. And we're at about ninety percent predictability with today's technology. I think that's only going to go up. So things are only going to become more predictable uh, in the future as we get better at um, analyzing uh, these bodies of cases and we become smarter about how we're looking at them and the factors that we're taking into account. I think one of the, the big challenges is representing the information from the real world in a way that these algorithms can properly contextualize and understand. So one of the, one of the challenges is what do you do about coming to terms with things like the likability of a witness, right, in a tax right. case. So if you're trying to predict how a court is actually going to decide a case, things like, well, how credible is your client going to be perceived by the court if they are to sit on the stand? And we know things like that make a difference. They just do. Absolutely. We're, we're humans, right? So likability matters, um, whether that should be legally relevant or not. Probably most people would say, well, probably not. It shouldn't be, uh, but that's that's the reality, right? And and so, so it takes a lot of the emotion out of it. I mean, the computer is very logical, right. and and just analyzes the facts, which I agree is is perhaps is better, but but maybe doesn't necessarily replicate real life. Right, right, and 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 different things, right? It's, it's so lots of things that we take for granted, given our five senses and and the sorts of information that that we take in as humans are just not available to these algorithms in their current. So right now, researchers, computer science researchers are hard at work building eyes for autonomous vehicles, right, of different kinds. So sensing yeah. the environment and 
and building systems that are actually embodied. So there's a lot of work going into embodying these intelligences and into robotics. And so there, there are a number of companies that are building these embedded systems that actually live inside robots. So some researchers are saying, well, an intelligence really is only an intelligence if we give it senses and give it some kind of embodiment so it can experience the world and learn from the world in ways that are similar to how we experience the world. Because then, then, it, then it can really um, become you know, much more, more interactive. Aware. And it's going to understand things that we kind of take for granted as humans that if, if you just training a model on a computer, it's, it's not going to have that awareness of, of lots of things that we take for granted that don't seem like you would have to model them, but really do have to be modeled, I think, for us to get to, to full artificial intelligence. Is there any ethical issues that you can think of with using this type of software? I know I spoke with someone earlier about when we talked about the autonomous vehicles and the ethical issues with there's someone walking on the sidewalk and there's a car coming right towards them. How does the car make the decision which what to do? Does it veer off and hit someone? Does it does it you know have a crash? So that's kind of an issue because as a machine, it doesn't have those capabilities to think like that. And I, I don't know if there's any issues that you can think of from a with a tax perspective. Or tax, tax is so black and white that <laughs> we don't have to worry about that. Right. So certainly I think there, there are issues. And I think if things proceed as, as, I, as I kind of expect, I think what will happen is the private sector is going to be the first to adopt a lot of these tools in the, the tax context. The public sector will be very closely behind the private sector. And so the private sector is going to be using it for tax planning, tax compliance, um, dispute resolution. The government's going to be using it for tax administration, tax policy development, and, and implementation. And it'll be a bit of a, a mutual arms race. So the private sector is going to be using these tools, obviously, to, to minimize the amount of tax that, that has to be paid in defense of the tax base. Um, the government is going to equally have responses, right? Legislative, regulatory responses, uh, administrative responses to protect the tax base. Uh, and what's going to happen is a complexification of the law. So just in the same way, so we've seen the income tax. It's been around for 100 years. In 100 years, it's gone from a very slender, fairly modest volume to a very, very complicated system that I think probably 20 years from now, we'll look back and say, oh, we thought it was so complicated in right. 2017. What a joke, because the system is going to become very, very much, much more complicated. And so the, there'll be no recourse but to these expert systems and that are using artificial intelligence, machine learning, other things to, to figure out tax liability. So I think that the end state is actually a very good end state from the perspective of tax fairness and integrity, because so much is going to be visible. Like It's just like it's actually going to be a pretty reasonable outcome uh, and it's going to be something that everyone kind of says yeah you know it's it's pretty fair and and it's knowable you can you know what the system requires of you and and you pay it and so it's so, more transparent than the idea of having a judge who uh, as you mentioned in your talk you know you know certain judges that tend to be more taxpayer friendly mm-hmm. or more government friendly mm-hmm. so you take that out of the equation right Right. And interestingly, um, the, the judge's task will, will probably become in some ways more challenging over time. So as we're, as we're able to make really clear predictions about the bulk of tax disputes, um, there, there are still going to be these, these issues, these disputes that fall right in the middle, right, that right. are very difficult to make judgment calls on. 
and so the judges are are actually going to be making those judgment calls in a in a narrower band, I think, of cases, I which means we, that they actually become more challenging to make those judgment calls. So things like intent, so knowing whether or not uh, you can can make that judgment if someone actually intended to evade tax, for example, that's mm-hmm. a hard thing for a computer to determine. Right. Right, and and it, a lot is going to turn on the credibility of of witnesses and the taxpayer, and and, and an overall assessment of the situation, uh, informed by a judge's particular personal experiences, right, and that they have right. no other way to make those judgment calls, but they're just going to have to filter it through their own human experience and and do their best. Now, how does information get into the system? So uh, we talked about your new software, Tax Foresight, mm-hmm. which is pretty powerful. Uh, pretty amazing, I think, what that's going to do for a lot of tax preparers and lawyers and, and accountants alike. But how does that information get there in the first place? How's it populated? Right. So right now, uh, you know, the Tax Court of Canada makes all of its judgments available on its website, and, and you can access those judgments uh, through different research platforms like TaxNet Pro uh, or uh, IntelliConnect or Notia. There are all these different research platforms that you can use. Canly has uh, most of these cases. So the, the cases themselves are widely available. Um, the real challenge is, as you say, so how do you how do you get those cases into a format that these machine learning algorithms can right. learn from? So there's a there's a process of taking those cases and getting them into a structured representation that the, the machine learning algorithms can, can really work with and understand. And so uh, we have uh, data scientists and computer scientists and uh, our legal research team who all work together in making that happen. So, so people um, actually have to be involved in, in populating the database. Yeah, so some of it, some of it involves um, automated scripting, other, other parts involve human intervention. So for example, just you know, if you think about natural language processing, which is how computer scientists talk about analyzing text using algorithms, it's natural language processing, those systems are getting really good. So Google Translate is amazing at translating from one language to another language. Um, one of the challenges that those systems have is they're not very good at analyzing the absence of language. Right, so okay. you so if you're imagining a, a given judgment by the courts, sometimes some judges talk about everything at great length, and they actually explicitly address every single potential factual aspect of the case. Other judges are are more conservative in how much they talk about all the different okay. aspects. So. If a judge is silent, it's really hard for one of these natural language processing systems to make inferences about that silence. Whereas if you or I were reading the case, we'd say, oh, well, in light of everything else here, I think the most reasonable assumption here is that this is, this is true or this is true yeah. or the, the judge believed this or that about the facts because that's that's what fits best with the account that the judge is relaying in, in the case. But yeah, the, and based the, on culture, our experience and the, and the environment that we're in. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. so... So that's where some human judgment comes in, just kind of filling in the, the gaps that are left in, in the judgments uh, around things that judges didn't say, but you know, pretty clearly intended. So what does this all mean to, to us CPAs, and how does it apply? It applies to people that are working, preparing taxes for sure, but what other applications does it have? Right, so, so I think it, it's, you know, obviously it's gonna come up for those who are engaged in um, in compliance matters, so helping taxpayers with their annual filings, their periodic filings. Uh, it's going to come up in a tax planning context, so if you're advising on, on how to pursue a particular 
plan that will um, minimize taxes for a taxpayer. These sorts of things are going to be relevant uh, if you're involved in dispute resolution. So if, you're, if your client has been reassessed by the CRA, naturally it's going to be at play there. I think more broadly, the future of these sorts of technologies are not just in the tax context. So um, we're launching our next product called Employment Foresight. Uh, next month. And so Employment Foresight is going to address a lot of issues that get litigated a lot uh, in the employment law context. So okay, things so like, what kinds of things? So things like how much reasonable notice do you have to provide to an employee if you're terminating them? And so that's going to be really relevant to a lot of CPAs who are right. working uh, for corporations, mm-hmm. for example. Uh, and there are lots of legal issues like that that computational methods are going to start uh, informing. So even if as a CPA, virtually none of your practice engages with tax. And I I know that's probably true of a lot of CPAs. There are going to be these technologies um, along the same lines as tax foresight that are going to increasingly influence um, the business context in which CPAs are operating. So these products could be used on the corporate side then as well. So it's not just on the public accounting side. Yeah, absolutely. And now that the computers are going to be doing all of this for us, are we going to lose our jobs? Do we still need lawyers and accountants Mm -hmm. to... um, fight these battles. So paradoxically, it's it's we're actually going to need we're going to want to have more accountants and more lawyers because That's good news. <laughs> yeah, what it means is for for every uh, set amount of time that uh, an accountant or a lawyer spends on something, they're going to be more productive. So the value to the client is actually going to go up for each of those chunks of time that accountants or lawyers spend on clients' matters. So Right, so they're um, spending less time actually sifting through data, trying to find relevant information. Yep, so basically lawyers and accountants move up the value chain right. and become more productive, just in the same way that you know the advent of spreadsheets didn't mean that you know no more accountants and you know no, the word processor not. didn't mean no more lawyers. Right. Uh, I think it's the same thing with these technologies. It just makes professionals more productive and able to do more in in less time. Great. And probably clients are are more uh, satisfied with the work and the billing because they see the value. Yeah, there'll be more value uh, for every dollar spent by clients on professional services. Okay. Well, that's excellent information, uh, Ben. I really appreciate you being with us here today. Yeah. Thanks so much, Jeffrey.